Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Tony Boscarino. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are continuing, no, not, sorry, not continuing, we are starting a new series that I am very, very excited about called Praying with Paul, where over the next four weeks, we are going to be diving deeply into four of Paul's prayers for the churches. And I love these passages of Scripture. And I really started paying attention to Paul's prayers quite a few years ago because of my wife, uh, Jess. When I was in college, Jess and a few others were uh, leading a prayer meeting that was much different than anything I had experienced before. So growing up, I went to a small little church, uh, small enough where in the middle of the service, a leader would get up and he'd say, does anyone have any prayer requests? And people would raise up their hands and he would sit there and write them all down. And then he would just pray for them one by one, going through the entire list of requests. And that practice led me to see prayer as simply just kind of like going through a list. And that's okay, and that's great, and we should do that. But I learned that there is also more to prayer. What was different about the prayer meeting that Jess and others led was that there weren't really any prayer requests at all. No prayer requests. Actually, the point of the meeting was to come before God, to quiet ourselves before the Lord, to listen to him, and then really pray back what we felt like he was leading us to pray. And so it's kind of like we were hearing from God's heart and then praying his heart back to him about our campus ministry, about the university, where we were at. And it wasn't so much like, you know, the prayers weren't like, God, heal this person or God, give this person a job. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But the prayers that we were praying were more like, God, open up our eyes to be able to actually see who you are. God, reveal your love in a way that we know it in the depths of our heart that you do love us. It's like, God, help us to live in the reality that your spirit lives in us. And what does that mean for our lives? Like, God, wake us up in the name of Jesus that we could know you. And the interesting thing is, is that a lot of the prayers that we prayed in that meeting we're really coming from the heart of Scripture and specifically coming from some of the passages that we're going to look at in this series, the way that Paul was praying. And so as we start this new series, my goal is that we would hear Paul's heart for the church in Ephesus, but more importantly, that we would hear God's heart for us in the ways that he wants us to grow and be transformed by his Spirit in us. My other hope is that maybe our prayer lives could be enriched that we would get passion to pray in the way that Scripture leads us to pray. And so that's where we're going. But I think the best thing to do uh, to start a prayer service off is uh, to pray, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we just recognize that you are good and faithful. You are true to all your promises like we sang about. Um, you are, you will forever be God and creator most powerful over all things. And so we just worship you. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes right now in this moment to receive your word. I pray against all distractions in the name of Jesus and that we'd be able to understand what you are saying to us and then we would go live it out. Father, I know that if it's just my words that are coming this morning, no one's life will be touched or transformed. And so I just humbly ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak through me. Have your way in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before we dive into Paul's, uh, Paul's first prayer for today, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about who Paul is. So 
The Apostle Paul originally went by the name of Saul, and he was an extremely devout Jewish man. So devout that when people started turning to Jesus as the Messiah and preaching that he was the Savior of the world, Paul immediately sprung into action to persecute the followers of Christ and to destroy this newly formed church before it could really take off. Why did Paul do that? Well, he in no way believed that Jesus was actually the promised Messiah that they were waiting for, and he did not want anyone else to believe that either. So he persecuted the church. Now, the first time that we see uh, Paul coming on Scripture is in Acts chapter 7, where he is pictured as a man who is overseeing the killing of a passionate follower of Jesus named Stephen. And then in Acts chapter 8, Um, it's almost like he becomes obsessed with persecuting this church. Acts chapter 8 speaks of him as ravaging the church. Actually, it says he went into the homes of people that were following Christ and pulled out men and women and threw them into prison. In Acts chapter 9, Scripture describes Paul as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so that was his whole focus. But at the end of Acts chapter 9, everything changed. So what happens is Paul is passionate about persecuting some more believers, wants to go to this place called Damascus, and on his way there, he is literally like hit off his horse by this meeting with the resurrected Jesus who just shows up in his life. It is incredible. Acts chapter 9, you guys should read it this past week. And what happens is after he meets the resurrected Jesus, then he is temporarily blinded, which is crazy. But he was temporarily blinded, but forever changed because his life looks completely different after meeting Jesus. He goes from Saul, as he was originally known, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, this apostle, who's going to risk his entire life so that people would believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. And so he goes on with that message. He goes from like terrorist to church planner. I mean, it's incredible. And then he goes on to write almost two-thirds of the New Testament that we have in our hands today. I mean, it's incredible what God did in this guy's life. And so if anything, if we learn anything from Paul, what we need to learn is that his life reminds us that God can radically change anyone. So that is Paul. That is where he is coming from. Now he spends the remainder of his life traveling around the ancient world, planning churches, encouraging believers, and also spending a great deal of time in prison under house arrest for his faith in Christ. So what we're going to do today is we're going to specifically look at his prayer to the Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1. Now Ephesus um, was an incredible city at this point in history. It was on one of Paul's missionary journeys that he stopped over in Ephesus for three years. And he stopped in this major city. Some scholars think that Ephesus was one of the top five biggest cities in the entire world at this time. Some people would say it was the second largest in the whole world. I mean, it's huge. It's a massive, massive city. Um, And so where, where we're talking about too, so you know, it's like Ephesus was located on the very western edge of Turkey. So that's the part of the world we're talking about. And it was such a major city due to the fact that it sat on a major trade route between the east and the west. Some scholars have even called it the Bank of Asia because of all the money that passed through it. 
Another reason for its prowess is that at the time, it housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of the Greek god Artemis. Now, Artemis was believed to be the daughter of Zeus, and Artemis was one of the most honored goddesses in all of ancient Greece. And the people of Ephesus were incredibly proud of their temple, and it was so ornate, it was huge, and they were known to be dedicated followers of Artemis. So Paul spends three years in Ephesus, about the years of 53 to 56 AD. So timeline, it's about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. And what he's doing there is he's encouraging believers, preaching the gospel, and calling non-believers to turn away from idols, to turn away from worshiping Artemis, and to solely follow Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. So he's there for three years. And then we have this, this span of five or six years where the Ephesian church hears nothing from him. And so he's, he's there and he leaves. And I mean, we're talking about like around 60, 62 AD when he actually writes this letter. Communication was pretty rare, you know. We're in 2021 right now. It's not like Paul was sending a text message or an email to the church. And so at this point, they knew him for three years, then he's gone. And then all of a sudden, this letter shows up around five or six years later to the church in Ephesus. They didn't know if they'd ever hear from him again, but here is Paul, the apostle, writing to them. And they are excited. They didn't know if they'd ever hear from him again. And here he is speaking to the church, and he's also going to pray over them. So what I want us to do is really like step into the shoes of the original audience to recognize that many of these people knew Paul personally during his time there. Many of these people had possibly accepted Christ through Paul. They understood his teaching. They knew his story. And now they hear that he's in jail because he actually writes Ephesians from a Roman jail because of his faith. So this is a man who is living everything for Jesus, knows the radical transformation that can happen in someone's life because of Jesus, and now he's written to them. What does he have to say? Whew, you guys feel the excitement? I don't, you're probably, it's inside, right? Okay, so they are excited, and he's going to pray for them. So let's see, what does he pray for them? Uh, look at verse 13. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, in your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so for this reason, what he's talking about is what he mentioned in the preceding verses, that he knows that these people have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've accepted the gospel, and they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, because I know that you've accepted Christ, and because I hear of the faith that you have, and the way that you have a relationship with God, and the love that you have for each other, I am continually thanking God for you, and I am also praying for you. So what exactly does he pray? Verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So the first thing that he prays for the believers in Ephesus is that they would know God better than they currently do right now. And to know God more is the most important thing for Paul because, again, he understands that when someone knows God and meets God, everything can change. Look back at his own life. But he also knows this, and here's the key, that knowing God is not a one-time thing. It's not that I met, you know, Jesus in sixth grade and I surrendered to him and then I'm going to get to meet him again when I go to heaven. 
That is not the Christian mentality. The Christian mentality is I receive Jesus and then every single day the rest of my life is spent seeking after him and knowing him better and better and better until I see him face to face. And so that is his heart for the church. And specifically, what he says is, he says uh, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what is he talking about there? It's important to note that he's not talking about, he's not asking God, would you please give them the Holy Spirit? Because through their faith, they already have the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 13. It says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So he isn't asking that they get the Holy Spirit. They already have him in their lives. So what does he mean by giving them a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, there's two words to look at that word spirit. Some scholars think it's Paul's asking that God would give these people an attitude or like a hunger to want to know God. Other scholars think that the word spirit it means that he's saying, although they already have the Spirit, I'm desiring that they would have a unique work of the Spirit in their life so that they could experience God even more, which is what I really think is going on here. And specifically, he uses the words wisdom and revelation. So when you think about wisdom, I want you to think the ability to perceive something accurately. Right? You know, like I've got people I consider wise in my life. I go to them because I feel like they can see a situation a little bit better than I can, right? So that's wisdom. And revelation means to uncover or to unveil something. Like when we read that in English, it says wisdom and revelation. But in Greek, those words are more tied together. It's more like one phrase. And so what he's actually saying is, God, I pray that they could see you more accurately as you continue to reveal yourself over and over and over again. You see how those things fit together? Let them see you for who you are as you continue to reveal yourself to them. So he wants them to see and understand God more than they do right now. And again, being a Christian is not a one-time knowing of God, but an ongoing, ever-deepening relationship with him. I would relate this to um, marrying Jess. My wife's sitting right over there. Well, I was dating, when I was dating Jess, and if someone would come to me and say, do you, do you know Jess? I'd be like, of course I know Jess. Of course I know Jess. Like, I love her. I want to marry her. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. But, like, after 11 plus years of being married to her, I realized I actually didn't know her very well at the beginning. And that's the truth for everyone. Like the more you're in a relationship with someone, the more that you get to know them. And so Paul wants the church to be in a relationship with God where they continue to know him more and more. And one thing I also want to note is that the word know in your Bibles in verse 17, or your translation may say knowledge, it comes from this Greek word meaning exact complete, and catch this, experiential knowledge. So he wants them to experience him, not just like know abstract facts about who God is, but much more. He wants them to know the things about God that can only come from a relationship with him. So let's go back to Jess, my wife. Another example. Prior to our relationship, I could have known the facts about her, you know? Like I could have known she was blonde. I could have known she has blue eyes. Could have known she went to Central Michigan University. Could have known what town she grew up in. Those are the facts. 
But now being in a relationship with her and being married to her, I know so much more. I know what really makes her happy. Like, I know what she cares about. And I know what breaks her heart. And I typically know, like, how she's going to respond in most situations. That's because we've had a relationship and we've grown together. And so that's what Paul is asking that, the Ephesian, that God would do in the Ephesian church, that they would know him, not just the facts, not just know that there is a God, that God had a son, his name is Jesus, he died and rose again. He's asking that they would actually get to know God. And so, like, get to know God's voice. You know, Jesus in the Gospels, he says, my sheep will hear my voice. Like, as Christians, we can actually learn to be like, yeah, that, that's God. I feel like he's directing and leading my life. I hear what you're saying. If you look through the book of Acts again, too, you're going to see over and over again, multiple times, where it's just like there was this leading of the Holy Spirit, which I believe Paul is asking for the church in Ephesus. So there's times in the book of Acts where they're like, well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So those believers, they knew that, yeah, this sounds right, but it also, like God is saying yes. There's another part in the book of Acts where Paul wants to go to a certain place, and he said he was kept from going there because of the Holy Spirit, right? It's growing to distinguish what's me, what's God, and then trusting in what God is saying and walking forward. So he wants them to know them, to know God so much more. Because again, being a Christian is not about knowing facts about God or Jesus, but being a Christian is about seeking after God, experiencing him, and truly knowing him at a heart level better and better until we see him face to face. So here's my first challenge. If you're sitting here and you're just like, I know facts about God, but I have no idea about what it is to know him in the way that you're talking about. My challenge for you this week is to just pray exactly what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, to say, God, in the name of Jesus, please give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation that I could know you better. And I encourage you to do that throughout the whole week. So that's Paul's first prayer. Let's look at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's like, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you, right? It's a prayer that like in the depth of who I am, I want to see you and know you and experience you. So the heart um, in biblical terms refers to like the center of one's personality. It's the whole inward self, compromising like the mind, the will, the emotion, it's like the expression that I just used a little earlier, at a heart level. It's like the core of who they are. Essentially what he's saying is, may the light bulb go on in the depths of who they are, that they can know the hope to which God has called them. And so he wants them first to know the hope to which they have been called. And it's important to note right off the bat that biblical hope and worldly hope are very, very different. So um, I was doing some research on this in Warren Wearsby, a biblical theologian. He explained it like this. He says, hope in the Bible does not mean like, I hope so. You know, it's not like a kid who really wants a certain toy for Christmas saying, oh, I really hope that I get this. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope uh, carries with it this assurance of the future. It's more like a confidence. The hope that we have in heaven in our future reality is not a wish but a confidence in a soon-realized future reality. That is what biblical hope is, confidence in a soon-realized future reality. 
And I was struck with this idea of hope because it's not something that I actually think about very often. And so this week when I was, when I was studying, I listened to this, um, this commentary podcast and I, I loved what this guy said. It's Dr. John Whitaker, but he was really pointing out how Christians need to know the hope to which they are called. He was, he was saying that unfortunately many Christians today They have a very vague or weak idea of what heaven is going to be like. And I know that I would put myself in that category also. You know, we we think of heaven. Well, I know that it's a place that I go when I die and I'll be with God. And if, if that's as far as we go, we're not really super excited about that. And we don't really like tangibly feel what that's going to be like. Um... I loved how this guy went on to just explain from Scripture that according to Scripture, God is creating a new heaven and a new earth in exactly the way that God intended it to be before sin entered into the world. So let's just think about this. Heaven is a place with no sickness at all. There's no death. There's no tears. There's no pain. You can read all about that in Revelation. There's no brokenness in any relationship. Like, you don't have to be jealous of anyone. There's no anxiety. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. There's not a single effect of sin which has so ravaged this world and continues to ravage this one. Nothing like that. And so I just read those things off. But I really want to just encourage us to take a minute to think about it. Just like imagine a world where there's absolutely no cancer. None. Like, there's no fear of death. There's no allergies. People like me can eat whatever I want, be around any animal I want to, right? There's no breaking down of our bodies because of age. The longer we walk on this earth, the less we are able to do what we used to be able to do, and that will not be a reality in heaven. That is incredible to think about. There's no reason to cry. I mean, no reason at all. There's no pain, and catch this, no physical pain that people suffer with. There's no mental pain that people suffer with. There's no emotional pain that people live with every single day on this earth. That will not be there. No brokenness in any relationship. You know, there's no unforgiveness. There's no bitterness. There's no insecurity thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know if that person likes me or not. You won't have that anymore. You won't be like, oh, I'm so stupid. I, I should have said something different. No. Like, you know, you'll be sitting up there being like, you worried about anything? No. What's worry? I don't know. I don't remember. Feel like, nah, nah, I'm good. Like every day. I mean, that's what we are looking forward to in our future hope. And Paul wants them to know that that is the reality and to set their hope fully on that eternity. Because this is why this is so important. Like Dr. Whitaker in the podcast, he said this, and it just stuck with me. What you truly hope for is what you will live for. What you truly hope for is what you will live for. And if our hope is set on the things of this world, whether that's, you know, success, lots of money, um, you know, prestige that goes with that. Maybe it's just, I just really want people to see me as cool or popular or whatever. If your biggest hope is that you get to live a comfortable life one one day and that finally you're at sleep and you just die and you just fade away, like, that's what you will live for. But that is not the hope that we are called to have in Jesus. But if we know the hope that we're called to have, a guaranteed, exponentially better life than we could ever experience here and one that lasts for all eternity, we will live for what truly matters during our very short time on this earth. Because what you hope for, you will live for. 
Paul really modeled this um, for the church in Philippi. And so Philippians 1, we'll have it on the screen. You can write down the reference if you want. In Philippians 1, he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What he is saying is that to be with Christ is so much better than anything that I could ever have on this earth. I know that it's better because I know what heaven will be like and I am living for that. I want to be with Christ. But as long as I walk on this earth, as long as I have breath in my lungs and my heart is beating, I am going to live for God's purposes. I am going to live for people to know the Lord so that they too could experience that eternity that we've been talking about, that they could have that hope sealed forever with the Lord. And so I just want to ask you, where is your hope today? You know, how often are you captivated by how incredible heaven is going to be? Because sometimes we're so like, you know, hungry for this world that we have no appetite for heaven. I'm just thinking, man, if we just thought about heaven, it would change us and change the way that we live. So is your hope here uh, on this earth or is your hope fixed on things in the life that is to come? You know, it's interesting. I mentioned at the beginning that Ephesus was this wealthy, incredibly wealthy city, housed one of the ancient wonders of the world, this incredible temple. And Paul is speaking to them in their context, saying, don't put your hope in, you know, how, how awesome your city is. Don't put your hope in how great this temple is. Don't put your hope in all the money that is flowing through this city. Put your hope in God. And interestingly, we know from history that Paul was really calling them to the right thing because Ephesus is, just lies in ruins now, you know? Temple lies in ruins. The city that had so much beauty and so much money flowing through it, not there anymore, you know? And so we can't put our treasure in the temporal pleasures of this world but really keep living for something that will last for all eternity. So let's go back to verse 18. So he says that they may know the hope to which he has called you. And then he says this phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So this line could be a little bit confusing, but I think it helps to underline the word his, as in his glorious inheritance in his people. So let me explain. What Paul's actually talking about here is God's inheritance. He's not talking about the inheritance that we have as Christians. He's not talking about the riches we have as Christians. He's mentioned those a lot earlier in chapter 1, and so I encourage you to go back and read the beginning of Ephesians 1, because there he mentions so many of the riches that we have. In Christ, we've been given every spiritual blessing. It's verse 3. We've been chosen. Verse 4. Loved. 5. Adopted. 5. Redeemed. 7. Given the Holy Spirit. So we have so many riches in Christ, but here in verse 18, he's talking about God's inheritance. So what he is saying is he is praying that the church in Ephesus would know that they are the riches of God's inheritance. I was studying this passage a lot, and one of the commentaries that I came across, um, he was explaining that Paul writes, verse 18, to show that believers are valuable to God because he purchased them in order to inherit them. Uh, another um, biblical scholar, Warren Worsby, again, he just says, 
Verse 18, this is an amazing truth that God should look on us as part of his great wealth. Paul wanted the Ephesians to look forward to their inheritance, yes, but also to understand that they too were God's inheritance paid for by him by the blood of his son. And this is incredible. And I don't know if everyone's understanding what I'm saying. So let me paint it this way. Okay, this might just be my own thought. Maybe you guys don't think this way. I do sometimes. Sometimes I feel like God, you know, maybe he doesn't really like me, okay? I kind of think that maybe I'm just going to slide in the back door of heaven just because I chose to believe in Jesus and I'll be okay. But that's going to be it. But that could not be further from the truth of what God is saying, that we are the riches of his inheritance. Actually, what this passage is saying, it's more like when we get to heaven, God's reaction will be totally different. Like Helen. You're in heaven. And God's like, Helen, I'm so excited you are here. You know, like I've been waiting for you. Obviously, he knew when that was going to happen. But he's like, you're here. This is awesome. I'm so glad that you get to see me. And we're seeing each other face to face as it was always created to be because God wanted to have that relationship with us. And any of you can put your name into that situation. That is the way that God looks at us. We are his valuable riches in his inheritance. And this is so important. Because if you start looking at God like he's excited to be with you, that he loves you, that he is with you, it will transform your Christianity. It will transform your relationship with God. If you're afraid of God, if you fear him, you stay away. If you know that there is one that is excited about you and loves you, you are ready to press in. And that's why it's so important that Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know it. And totally, God wants us to get that too, locked down into the depths of our heart. That's what he's saying. We need to know this. Okay, so the last request of Paul comes in verse 19. Again, he said earlier, it's in the same idea, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that, and then verse 19, we pick it up, in order that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. He is praying to God, saying, I want them to know that through your spirit they have a power that is unlike anything else in this world, a power that enables them to live different than those who have not accepted Christ. The incomparably great power for us who believe, meaning that there's a distinction. Like, have you ever thought about that? Seriously, think about it for a moment. That if you're a Christian today, you have the Holy Spirit in you which enables you to live a different life than other people who live on your same street that don't know Jesus. There is power in you through his Spirit that enables you to live differently. That's what Paul is saying. And this is exactly what he wants the Ephesian church to know, that we as followers of Christ, we don't have to live captive to sin. We have been freed to live life differently. We can forgive when it seems absolutely impossible and wrong to do because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. He is the one that helps us to forgive. Um, we can return grace and love for hatred and when people are really mean to us because it's not us doing it. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us that is overflowing with grace and love. Um, we can live without anger, without lust, without bitterness, without greed, controlling every aspect of our lives. Essentially, we don't have to play by the same rules as everyone else who doesn't have Jesus. 
That is part of Christianity. That's a part of being a Christian. And I love how Paul puts this when he's talking to the church in uh, Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, he's talking to them. There's jealousy, there's anger, there's strife going on. And what he says is this. The NIV version puts it like this. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And then this is the biggest part right here. Are you not acting like mere humans? that interesting? Just think about the implications of that. And then look at what the ESV says. For you are still the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the way of the flesh? And then listen to this. And behaving only in a human way. Implications are huge. He's saying you don't have to act only in a human way because the creator of the earth is now living in you and has empowered you to live differently. So why are you still living like everybody else? That's what Paul is saying. Why are you acting like a normal human being? I love that part because it's just like, oh man, there's so much more to God that I don't understand, but I want to experience whatever he has for me. Paul wanted them to know that they had access to another power in their life, which was greater than anything that they could get anywhere else. A greater power than, you know, this goddess of Artemis. And what's so interesting is that Ephesus was a culture that was just like fixated on power. Going through the, the ruins in the city of Ephesus, people have found these spells, these incantations, these ways that they would like invoke different names to try and manipulate all the spirits. And so Paul is speaking right into them saying, you have a power within you that is greater than anything you've ever seen or known. And that power comes from this God who desperately loves you and is actually living in you. And he wants to empower you to live differently. He wants to empower you to live differently. The believers in Ephesus needed the eyes of their heart open to see that, and so do we. God doesn't change like we sang about this morning. I think one of the saddest things in Christianity is when people have trusted in Jesus, but then they, risk the, they, they, they live the rest of their lives not even scratching the surface on the life that is available to them as a Christian. That is one of the saddest things to think, oh, I have Jesus, but I'm, I just live like everyone else for the rest of my life. That's so sad, and I think it's one of Satan's biggest ploys. So if he can't keep us from accepting Jesus, his next biggest goal is to make sure that absolutely none of us understand what we have in Jesus, that none of us understand the power that we have to live differently, the power that we have to forgive and love and just pour out grace. He doesn't want us to know that because, catch this, if collectively the body of Christ starts realizing what we have in the Holy Spirit and we start living that way, start loving, not controlled by sin, able to give, freely let go of what we have, if we're able to just love people unconditionally, what's going to happen? The world is going to take a huge notice of that and be like, whoa, there's something going on with Christianity that is so different than my life. I can't do what they're doing, and I want to know how they're doing it. And the thing is, we can't do it ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit's power in us. But if we collectively did it, whoa, this would be huge. And that's why Paul wants the church to know what is theirs because of the Holy Spirit. And I just, he just wants them to get it so much. And I was just thinking about this. It reminded me of uh, the Antique Roadshow. Uh, anybody know that show? Got a few people. If you don't know, 
what happens in that show is people take stuff that they've had up in their attic or in their closet for years and years, stuff that's passed down through the family line, right? And then they bring it to an expert, and then this person will tell them what it's worth. And my favorite part of the show, the reason part of the show is on air, is because people will bring in this thing that they just had collecting dust somewhere, and someone will look at it and be like, this is incredible. This is worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And I love that part because, like, they don't even know what to say. They're just like, oh my gosh, I never knew that. They just get so excited and so happy. They had it for years. They never knew what it was worth. And I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of Christians do that. Like, okay, we have the Holy Spirit, but it's almost like the Holy Spirit's collecting dust in our lives. We have never really realized what he is worth and what he can do. And that's what Paul is like, God, open their eyes to know the incomparably great power of your spirit. That is what he wants, and that is what God wants for all of us, too, completely, to know and to experience everything that God has for us. So, in just wrapping everything up, I really want to challenge you in four different ways. I want to challenge you to pray four different prayers. So if you're a person in here who is just all about the facts, if you're just all about the facts, I know facts about God, but I don't really know him, then your prayer this week every single day is just pray, God, give me a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That is what I want. If you're a person in here who just, like, I don't have an idea of heaven. Like, that, that's so vague for me. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, my hope is more in this world. Then I hope and I challenge you this week to pray exactly what Paul prays. God, pray that you would um, open the eyes of my heart, that I would know the hope to which I've been called. And if you're sitting in here and you're a person that's just like, I just don't feel like God's going to be happy to see me. I don't feel like God loves me. I feel like he's more of a punisher than one who is actually totally in love with me. Then I encourage you to pray that prayer that Paul does. Um, God, help me to see that I am the riches of your inheritance. Help me to see the way that you really honestly feel about me. And then finally, if you've, you've been a Christian and, you know, you've listened to everything I said, and you're like, well, that all sounds good, Tony, but I've never experienced anything like that, I would encourage you to pray the prayer that Paul is praying to say, God, open the eyes of my heart that I would be able to know the incomparably great power that you have for me because I have trusted in Jesus. And so that's really my challenge for all of you, pick one of those, pray it this week, and then let's just believe and trust that God is working in our lives. Just to close with this, you know, we're looking at Paul's prayers in this series. So we're going to be looking at Paul's heart for the church. But we can't forget that we're looking at scripture, right? So the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write out these prayers, meaning that it was God's desire for the church in Ephesus to grow like that. But it is also God's desire for us to grow in all of those ways. And so as we continue the series, the next three weeks, let's just really have an open heart that God, whatever we're reading the prayer about, I want that in my life. Reveal that to me and change me completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is in the name of Jesus, again, that we come to you. And Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would wake up me and every single person in this room to the truth of it. God, you say it's alive and active, but sometimes we don't experience it like that for whatever reason. And so, Lord, make your truth alive, um, or at least show us that it is alive already. God, I pray, too, that we would be a church that grows in our understanding of you 
but that we would also trust that we are and can do what you say we are and what we can do. And Father, I do pray for our church. I pray that we would live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that it would speak such a message to those that don't know you, that they would want to know you, that our community would be changed as we live surrendered to you and empowered to live like Jesus. So God, use us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.